Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. Look who's back. Back again. It's Ollie Horn. Tell your friend. And joining us this week is disability activist and historian Mark Bookman.、Uh, when it comes to accessibility planning, the Japanese River Cruise Kyokai always consults him first before just doing the cheaper thing that they had already decided to do. Mark, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, guys. On this week's show, Mark has the inside scoop on the Japanese government's efforts to improve and highlight accessibility ahead of the Paralympics. And、uh, if you don't mind us bragging about our own activism, we might tell the story of how Ali and I got the Japanese government to cover up a bunch of cracks on the sidewalk by telling them that the cracks were coronavirus infection numbers. Plus, Ali's got your weekly river cruise recommendation. Ali? Yes, Bobby. This week, with news that Hooters Shibuya is trialing its first floating restaurant, later in the show, I will give my reasons for cautiously recommending the cruise, pending confirmation that the references in their press release to world class flotation devices were there in the name of safety and not misogyny. And beat that annually increasing summer heat with a riverboat that has its very own onboard time machine. We'll tell you how much it costs for a family of four to buy a ticket to start over in the 1960s. More on that later, but first, Soap Talk. Uh, let's start off this week by saying a special thank you to、uh, Brian. Oh, snap.、Uh, no, not that Brian.、Uh, this is a special Brian. This is Tom Brian. Who lives in Edinburgh? Regular listeners of the show will know that I'm currently the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and、uh, I had an absolutely terrible start to my festival.、Uh, I turned up to an Airbnb,、uh, which I'd booked off platform because I'm smart, and、uh, it turns out that I booked the house of an aggressive, abusive drunk.、Um, and so I got to, I checked in at about 11 o'clock、uh, <laughs> at night. And I went straight to bed, didn't even meet the guy because it was my friend that got the key. And I woke up to sounds of, there's no easy way of saying this, domestic violence.、Uh, and so I knocked on my friend's door to say, we better go downstairs and intervene. This sounds bad.、Um, and while that happened, some of the ceiling of the Airbnb fell on the floor. And so I had to compose a message to the host saying, sorry to interrupt. But some of your ceilings on the floor, which is a sentence that sounds like I've made it up in some like JLPT <laughs> practice, right? The ceiling is on the floor. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like it's a sentence that should exist in any language.、Um, and then,、uh, in response to my very polite suggestion that some of the ceiling shouldn't be on the floor,、uh, this guy stormed into my, to my room while I was actually sat in my underwear eating a soiled sandwich, which is a story that I don't have time for, but just, just give some context. Absolutely pathetic. And,、uh, and he's, he's a big Polish bloke. He screams, Get out of my house. You've got to get out of my house right now. You could have been eating、contract. a clean sandwich in soiled underwear. <laughs> That's also true. Well, I did shit myself because he was like, getting properly aggressive. And、uh, he was like, You've got to leave my house right now. We have a contract, and that means that the contract's over. And it wasn't the appropriate time for me to mention my multiple law degrees and explain i n g That's not how contracts work.、Um, but he was saying it in such a way as if he was expecting me to plead with him to stay, as if I was like, Oh, no, please let me stay in the abusive house. So anyway, I left, but I didn't leave quickly enough. He, he packed my things for me, including pictures of my show poster, which was really funny to watch. Like, big, angry, aggressive Polish bloke. Drunk. Oh, he was drunk because I had three beers in the fridge. He drunk them by the morning on steroids, carefully packing、uh, pictures of my sexy legs into my suitcase on my behalf. I didn't pack quickly enough, so he set his dog on me.、Uh, so then the,、uh, the, the dog took a big like, chunk out of my leg, which was a shame. Jesus. Then I went to the. <laughs> Oh, it's, oh, it's rubbish story. Then,、uh, I was, then I left his house, went to the nearest police station so I could get cleaned up. And、um, the police went around to his house. He made a counterclaim, claiming that actually I'd punched him and the bite mark would have already have been there. 
which firstly I didn't I've never punched anyone in my life secondly how glad I was to have 5,000 pieces of evidence uh, in my show flyer that I actually had very sexy blemish free legs uh, <laughs> just just weeks just weeks before the festival um, anyway all sorts of all sorts of things I should have done differently firstly I should have done more due diligence because when I booked this guy off platform he insisted we we contract off platform and I said, fine, but can you just prove that you live where you live so I'm not getting scammed? And he sent me a letter with his name and address on it. But what I didn't check at the time was that letter was sent from some criminal defense solicitors, which wasn't the red flag it should have been at the time. Anyway, I told this, sh I told this story at the start of, uh, of, of my, my first show. And it just so happened that Brian was in the audience. Uh, and <laughs> this, this Brian said, hey, is that story true? I listened to your podcast. It sounds plausible that you'd get yourself in this kind of mess. And <laughs> it is, I said, it is yes. very on brand for you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely is. Uh, and so we need to say a very big thank you to Tom Bryan, uh, who is not only allowing me to stay in, in his lovely Edinburgh apartment, uh, but, um, but also allowing us to record here as well. So in a way, this is our first ever live podcast recording in front of a in front of a Brian. He's in the kitchen next door. Okay, tell him to keep it down. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was I was gonna say this is a this is kind of like a good news bad news situation because I mean good news is it's probably a good thing that you had twenty minutes of space to fill in your hour long show. Uh, bad news is you used up twenty minutes of our show. Hi, hi Mark. Hi, hi Mark. Thanks for joining us. Hello there. Mark, Mark, I'm sorry. I, I had I had to get this off my chest. There's no way. I, there's no way I could have started without explaining that. No, I'm, it ha it had I, to be done. I'm an actual I'm an actual actual pain from this this bite actually that's a good point does airbnb do a good job for accessibility uh, now here we get into a story great uh, so uh yes uh airbnb generally speaking depending on where you are does a good job but you know uh inside of japan if we're talking about access to short-term stays in general you know currently 0.4 percent of hotel rooms around the country are wheelchair accessible uh, so you're going to have a hard time finding anywhere. And if you do look for Airbnb, you may be able to find one that's accessible. But uh, given that the options are so thin and far between for anywhere in this country, um, you may just well find yourself, you know, in a domestic violence situation or getting chased by a dog. Uh, but then again, that could be part of the course for <laughs> a lot of access around here. So you know, that, that's a different conversation, I suppose. Sure. Did you say 0.4%? Yeah. That sounds imp impossibly low. It's like they're trying to make it non-accessible. Yeah. So uh, as it turns out, uh, according to a 2017 survey by the Ministry of Land Infrastructure and Tourism, uh, roughly 350 something out of 250,000 uh, surveyed hotel rooms were wheelchair accessible. Um, that number has gotten a little bit closer to 1% as we've gotten closer to the Paralympics, but we're still not at 1% yet. So Mark, as a disability activist, one of the things you're clearly very good at is having your numbers down. Uh, besides that, what other things does a disability activist do? My day-to-day -day is basically waking up and finding problems or solutions with every single thing I do. So, you know, if I wake up in the morning and I sit up in bed with help from a caregiver because someone's able to come and help me do that, great. You know what? That's a history project. That's, you know, an accessibility win. Why is this system working? How are they able to get to my house? You know, how do I make sure this happens for other people who need caregivers? If that caregiver doesn't show up, well, guess what? That's a policy paper. I'm going to go yell at a politician and say, hey, look, make a better system. Make sure someone's there to help me get up in the morning. 
When I take my, you know, get out of my bed and go into my wheelchair, if that wheelchair is there, hey, thank you, engineer who built it. I'm glad that it fits my body. Let's make sure more people can get those. If my chair is not there, again, that's another person to yell at. So whether I'm going from my bed to my wheelchair, my wheelchair to the train, the train to my school, my school to my work, whatever it might be, everything I do turns into, hey, look, how do we make the system work as well for other people? Or if it's not working, what do we do to fix it? And how do you raise awareness or who do you bring these issues to? So, you know... I interact with a bunch of different people who make the system work. So if getting up in the morning as a caregiver and getting into my wheelchair as an engineer and riding a train as a station attendant and getting into school as an academic administrator and going to my work is work uh, interacting with policymakers, whoever it might be, I'm interacting with folks at every step of the way from all different specializations because they're all involved in making my day-to-day work and everyone else's day-to-day work. You know, at the end of the day, everyone, regardless as to whether they have a disability or not, has to wake up, go to school, go to go to work, go out and play. So mm-hmm. figuring out how to connect mm-hmm. all these different stakeholders uh, and make sure that they are able to uh, coordinate their efforts to help as many people as possible, that's my job as a disability advocate. And I know you do a lot of work for hidden disabilities as well. I know you, you as, a, as a wheelchair user, the fact that you're not able to do certain things physically is, is quite obvious. And, and I wonder whether there are some special challenges in Japan about making the country more accessible for people whose problems are, are less in your face and apparent on first glance. Yeah, thank you for the question, Ali. You know, there's a lot of issues around this. And part of the problem is just that accessibility conversations uh, are relatively uh, new. And there's been a lot of them over the last couple of years. But if we're just starting to have conversations around how to get disabled folks in the room uh, who might have visible disabilities, uh, that creates that much more problem for people who have invisible disabilities. How do they begin to advocate? You know, can they get in the room and talk about their needs. Mm. Uh, Who are they talking about their needs to? Is there information out there about who they have to interact with? And how do they get out of issues of stigma? And this is the real thing is, you know, uh, do you really want to go and uh, potentially out yourself as having an invisible disability if it means, uh, you know, repercussions? So we're at this moment in time where we're starting to see accessibility become uh, a greater part of the conversation. The Paralympics are driving part of that. Recent policy developments are as well. But as uh, that access is growing, and we're now just getting to the point where people with invisible disabilities can start to come forward, that's uh, just you know a burgeoning conversation that we're going to have to keep following. We're definitely going to talk about what the Paralympics has done to, to spark conversation. Uh, and we'll look at that in the news. Before we do so, Bobby, we have some people to thank. Is that right? Uh, we have a person to thank. Okay, that's still uh, <laughs> that's still something to celebrate. Thank you to Vincent, who bought us five coffees. Vincent writes, due to Ollie's absence in the last episode, I laughed a lot less, but probably learned a lot more. Uh, well, Vincent, uh, I appreciate that. And I hope that this week you were able to laugh uh, twice as hard when picturing Ollie in his underwear getting bitten by a dog. And on that note, shall we jump into... The news. 
So the Olympics are over and some people in Japan have not forgotten that the Paralympics are also fast approaching. Uh, the Paralympics are meant to not only be accessible for the athletes, of course, but also to be an opportunity for everyone to reflect on and improve on accessibility and inclusion in countries all over the world. So I'd like to start by asking Mark, in your experience, what should Japan be using this opportunity to reflect on and improve on? Other than obviously the coronavirus response. That's a given. <laughs> that that's a disaster. Yes. <laughs> well, particularly so for people with disabilities, and this kind of gets into... Uh, I'll, let me connect these points. Why not? Oh, good. My, now, now, now I've made a smart point. Thank you very much. So <laughs> glad oh. to be back. Hey, look, Ali, there's a first time for everything. But let me just say this. So when it comes to uh, what COVID has showed us, COVID has showed us that there are still a lot of barriers in the built environment. Disabled folks have trouble, you know, getting on trains. They've got to wait half an hour for someone to pull out a ramp for a wheelchair user to get on. You know, they can't navigate stores as fast. So when masks are selling out, they're screwed. You know, as disabled mm. people get left behind because the environment's not accessible, they have to rely on their friends and families and caregivers to go in, out and navigate that environment for them to get the food, to get the water to get whatever they might need but during the coronavirus because of fears of infection uh those networks of friends and family have been falling apart folks can't rely on anyone yeah. anymore and that means that they're put in uh, basically left with no choice but to enter group homes or institutions where uh, a couple people can care for a lot of disabled folks. In theory, this maximizes the cost benefit, but in reality, you know, you can't social distance in a group home. You can't get access to medical supplies effectively. You can't get, you know, personal protective equipment. And you see cluster infections happening at disabled, uh, you know, institutions throughout the country. Why does this matter ahead of the Olympics? Well, this same dynamic of, huh, the environment's not accessible. Let's rely on caregivers. Huh, caregivers are not around. Let's institutionalize disabled folks. Huh, institutions lack resources. I guess that's, you know, going to lead to neglect and abuse of the people who live there. That dynamic has been at play for years, long before COVID. And that's what Japan, the Olympics and the Paralympics give us a chance to focus on and fix. It's let's build, let's rebuild the environment so we're not having to rely so heavily on these care networks that are so precarious. You know, with a country that has the world's fastest aging population, roughly 30% over the age of 65, with a country that um, has, you know, a shrinking labor force, currently Japan is around 340,000 caregivers short. To put that number in perspective, the supply versus demand ratio is roughly, you know, 1 to 15 uh, it's just a huge wow. issue. The Olympics are this chance to reflect on this problem and say, hey, look, let's rebuild the environment. Let's remake these care systems. Let's make sure disabled people can live independent and uh, self-determined lives. That's what the games are for, not just showcasing you know, a couple of elite athletes with some nice equipment running around a basketball field. So what you're saying is that even if the Olympics hadn't happened, there is a bit of a ticking time bomb. And while it might be beneficial to make the odds, you know, changes such as the odd ramp here and there so spectators can enjoy the Paralympics, actually, irrespective of the, the, the current disabled population, 
Japan's going to need this structure at some point anyway. So all this has really done is focus the mind a bit sooner. Exactly. The games have been a springboard for us to really start thinking about these issues and to recognize that building that ramp, whether it's to the Olympic Stadium or to the train station to get you there, is not just a matter of, you know, fixing things for the games, but it's a long-term investment and it's one that hopefully will pay off down the road. Saying these are a springboard makes the idea of that ramp sound even more fun. Oh yeah, my wheelchair's ready. (laughs) (laughs) Ollie and I are always noticeably uncomfortable anytime we have to talk about anything sports related, uh, even the Olympics. So it was very reassuring to hear you use the word basketball field. Uh, yes, well, you know, what, what, what can I say? As uh, I am very much interested in sports ball as it is. Um. <laughs> so, so you're speaking as somebody who the government actually came to as a consultant for uh, accessibility issues approaching the Paralympics. Compared to other countries in your experience, how does Japan's attitude towards accessibility stack up? So I think Japan has the right idea, or it's starting to get there. You know, uh, for many years, accessibility in Japan was optional. It was something that you could do that if you wanted to set up uh, facilities for, you know, disabled folks or old folks or other people who need access, uh, there, there was some information out there throughout the 80s and 90s, for instance. Uh, but since 2000, accessibility uh, became a legal requirement on public transit. And from that moment in time, it's really been you give a mouse a cookie, he wants a glass of milk, or you give a disabled person a train and he gets to go places. So So when you get someone on a train, then their school where they can get to finally has to be accessible. When the school becomes accessible, well, then they get education, so you've got to let them get a job. The workplace changes. When they get money from that, then the entertainment venue changes. You know, for the last 20 years, Japan's been building, building, building up this awareness uh, in more sectors of society. And with that in mind, it's been similar to places like, you know, the U.S., the U.K., uh, Uh, other parts of the world. But what I'll say separates Japan is the target of the accessibility is, is really different. So, you know, when I come to Japan as, uh, you know, a big, fat, white guy who uses a uh, big, heavy uh, foreign wheelchair, you know, I can't use any of the toilets that are built here. They're all too low to the ground and, and my chair is too tall. My Japanese friends, when they go to the U.S. or the U.K., their chairs are too short and they can't use the toilets over there. So it's really just a matter of who the target is for. And since Japan has its own unique history in the sense that, you know, it lost the war. It had an economic miracle in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And Japan has its own kind of set of uh, political and historical circumstances. The target here is different. You find, you know, tactile pavement that guides uh, blind and visually impaired people everywhere here because... Uh, Japan's first disability welfare law, which was passed in 1949, had only five disabled people on the committee, all of whom were blind. So they get the benefits. Yeah. Those were actually a Japanese invention, by the way. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. They're called Tenji Broku. Yeah, the Tenji tenji blocks are great. There's a lot of um, accessibility options for... uh... For people on buses, there's the sounds at traffic lights. There's a lot of things that Japan does well, I think. 
Yeah. So, you know, uh, like I said, it's a matter of looking at the history, seeing who's been involved in the policymaking and why, you know, the benefits tend to reflect them in Japan. The the people who are involved, the type of impairments they have or disabilities they have are different here than what you see in the US or the UK or South Africa, wherever it might be. Often there are these monumental moments in countries where you have the first cabinet minister who's a wheelchair user or, you know, you have people who who are blind. I know in the UK we had a blind politician who was reading his speeches from Braille. And I think that those kind of things do, they do help people like me who don't have those kind of disabilities go, oh, wait, you know, that's his workplace. And now I'm actually watching, I, I can watch how he's interfacing with his job. D- does Japan have high profile people that, that are publicly demonstrating how their workplace has adapted their, their work environment for them? Yeah, so if you want to talk about disabled celebrities in Japan, the first blind diet member was elected in 1905. Uh, There was a wheelchair user in 1977. Uh, More recently, there have been two severely disabled diet members, one with ALS and one with cerebral palsy, who were elected, uh, I want to say, in 2019. So, Okuma Shigenobu, who was prime minister twice, had a fake leg because he got it blown off in a grenade attack. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there, there have been many high-profile people, uh, and if you look at when they show up, they show up at these moments in time when history creates a sort of opening for internal and external pressure to collide. For instance... Uh, the two diet members who were recently elected ahead of the Paralympic Games, uh, they were elected in part because the games were coming, in part because of the decades of disability activism that I mentioned a few moments ago. Uh, so you get to this point where uh, representation is tied to this sort of key historical moments. Some folks get mm-hmm. to say, hey, look, this place is accessible for me, or hey, look, this workplace is not, and this is what has to change. The high-profile ones, just like the Paralympic athletes, you know, the sort of elites who get access to the right type of equipment and the right type of training and the right type of resources, get to showcase that things are uh, are improving for them or can improve further for them, but there are also that many people left behind who don't get to do that. So thinking about both sides is important. Yeah, let's talk about the way the Paralympics raises visibility for a very certain kind of disability. Um, and, and I apologize if this is a rude way to phrase this, but I think one of the downsides is that it overemphasizes the focus and the visibility on disabled people who are really good at doing stuff. Um, <laughs> right. There's, there, I remember like there was a, memefi- a memefied thing a while back that it was a... Uh, um, a Paralympic weightlifter that had uh, the blade type legs and he was squatting and deadlifting these huge amounts of weight and down on the bottom it said, what's your excuse? And somebody had retweeted that with, I don't have metal legs. Um, (laughs) But you had a great example in your TED talk too. I think it was a ping pong Paralympian. Badminton, I think, yeah. Yeah, this was, uh, this was, had some, some slogan across it that when you translated it from Japanese, it said, a disability is not an excuse. Losing is just weakness, or something like that. Yeah, having a disability is no excuse if you lose, you're just weak. Exactly. Yeah. Good God. Yeah. That's horrible messaging. It just seems like if you'd thought about it, you would have realized that was horrible messaging. And that was produced by uh, Tokyo Tof, you know, by the Tokyo Metropolitan Government. Sorry, sorry, just so I can understand what this conversation has now become. Is there a suggestion that the Paralympics can do harm 
for disabled people because when they're asked excuse me can you help me get into this train carriage the response will be well no i've just seen one of you throw a shot bit really far you can do it yourself is, is that the implication of this question if you want to be flippant about it yes if you want to be more subtle and vicious about it <laughs> it gets far more insidious than that i do feel like I've, I've accidentally stumbled on something quite sinister yeah i mean look for as many people as the games help they can cause problems let's be real about it really uh, i mean i just not considered this yeah like think about it if you have a pressure to do something and in this case in a short amount of time japan wins the bid in 2012 they've got the olympics happening in 2020 or were supposed to happen in 2020 anyway that gives you eight years to basically rebuild society from nothing to you know full throttle in terms of making accessibility in terms of accommodating as many people as possible and when you're rushing to do that you're not necessarily taking the time to check with everyone to see that what you're doing is useful or desired. I mean, if we think about mm. that po- that poster of someone saying, having a disability is no excuse. If you lose, you're just weak. You know, that obviously is a miss for a lot of folks. There are people who think, well, I don't have the right technology that you do. I don't have the right privilege that you do. I don't have the right body that you do. But... Uh, Anyone would have noticed that if there was time to slow down and think for a minute, huh, maybe putting this out is going to piss off some people. But when you're rushing for the games, you don't always have that time. I see parallels with uh, the Sheryl Sandberg lean in backlash too. Um, this idea that you go, women can do anything and everything and should be doing anything and everything. And, and that has negative effects on women who are overloaded, women who go, I don't want to have to do everything perfectly and be great at at all the different uh, avenues of my life at the same time. Exactly. You know, it's, it's a, why should disabled people have to be superpowered? There's, we shouldn't have to be able to do everything all the time and live up to this image of being either inspirational Yay! You know, look at me. I, I, I'm, I'm inspiring so many people by being here. Uh, th- th- that's not my goal in life. My goal in life is to wake up, have food, go to bed, and not think about everything else. If there had been somebody in the room at that advertising meeting, um, you you would have had a real quick response to go. This is not good messaging. This this is messaging that doesn't apply to the majority even of of disabled people who are not athletes or Paralympic athletes. So there could have been a lot more done to actually listen to people. Well, Bobby, you're absolutely right, because the Olympics also for, for non-disabled people, like we shouldn't feel shame that we're not running 100 meters in nine seconds. Should should we? No. <laughs> it's Thank you. And no. <laughs> <laughs> but but, that, but well, that's the parallel, isn't it, right? Like it's only it's a subsection of yeah. non-able-bodied people who are good at sport, and that's, that's, all it need, that's all it needs to be, because that's all it is for able-bodied people too. But they did make some effort to reach out and, and uh, get advice on how to proceed. Uh, in particular, I know you were consulted, Mark. So when the government comes to you and says, what do we need to do ahead of the Paralympics? What do you say? So the first thing I tell them is, well, if you want to figure out where we have to go, you can't ask one person. You know, I'm a white 30-year-old foreigner in a wheelchair who lives in the middle of Odaiba and, and goes out very, very sparingly. My perspective is not the same as every other disabled person who lives in Japan or outside of Japan. So you need to get more people involved in the conversation. You need to figure out how to get more people at the table. And to have that happen... 
you know, you can recommend a number of things. You can say, oh, let's uh, crowdsource information. Let's, you know, start using uh, our uh, phones to get information about what works and what doesn't work for people. But at the end of the day, even those conversations have a limit. You know, you can only get information from so many people, either because only so many folks submit information or uh, so many folks can be reached and know about the crowdsourcing initiative you're doing. At the end of the day, you can only gather so much and you have to make choices. So when you tell the government, hey, let's collect information from as many people as possible, they're still going to turn around and say, okay, but what is the right choice? Tell us. Um, and for, for me, there's a limit there, but I have to give a recommendation and sometimes I'm listened to and sometimes I'm not. Hey, thanks very much for listening to this episode 95 of Japan by River Cruise. Don't forget, we have a new episode every Friday. We look forward to seeing you then. And thank you to our guest this week, Mark Bookman. Mark, thanks for joining us. It was extremely educational. Uh, anything you'd like to share with our listeners before we go? Yeah, so uh, thank you so much again for having me. I'll say one thing here. You know, at the end of the day, all of us listening are involved in the process of making accessibility. When we wake up, when we go to school, when we go to work, we're always, you know, changing the environments around us or building them in some ways that, that help us get around. And I think it's important that we all think about how we can use our efforts and the fact that we're walking around these different places to make the environment more accessible for other people too. So I'd encourage you all to ask your friends, ask your family, ask the people around what you can do uh, to make the environment more accessible for them. Uh, and hopefully, as we all get access to more spaces, we'll have a more inclusive and a more interested world. Most people plug a book or an article or a YouTube video, and Mark plugs compassion, making us all look bad. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure talking to you, and we will see you guys next week.